Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. I love, I love what God's been speaking to us through the book of Corinthians. Anybody else? It's been, all right. Well, there, I was about to ask how it's been, and you have your answer. It's been great. You know, the book of Corinthians is just so relevant for us here and now in the culture that we live in. Along the way, we've seen the Apostle Paul address issue after issue that arose in the church in Corinth that looks a lot like our day. Divisions and factions amongst believers, complicated loyalties, issues of sexuality, gender, and identity, how to truly love one another through all this mess, what to do when somebody you know, needs to be disciplined in the church, the heart of communion, the purpose and exercise of spiritual gifts. We can go right on and on. It's been hitting some high points, some important things. And Paul brings a lot of clarity, a lot of instruction that we still need to hear today. But one thing that Paul does the entire way through that I love is as he's talking about these things, he relentlessly points them back to the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of all these things. The gospel is the foundation of why we live differently than our world. And so it's only fitting that his final focus, and you can turn with me to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, his final focus is the gospel itself. It's the gospel How many of you guys know that whatever gospel we believe shapes our lives? Whatever we believe is the good news, whether that's an agenda-driven thing, whatever it is in our world that's captured our focus that we pour our time and our energy into, whatever gospel we've latched onto, it will shape our lives. Do you know that? An important question for all of us today as we get started is, you know, what do I say the gospel is? Not just with my words, but the way I live my life the way I am with my family, my friends at work, what do I say? What does my life say to people that the gospel is? Turn with me to chapter 15. We're going to look together at the whole of chapter 15, and you could really just call this passage the gospel of Paul. The gospel of Paul. We don't have the gospel of Paul in our Bibles, except we do. It's called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 16 has some great stuff as well. A lot of personal greetings and requests. But this is where Paul wraps up his letter to the Corinthian church. And Paul brings everything back to the bedrock of our faith, the resurrected, victorious Jesus. Amen? Are you ready for the word? All right, okay. It's beginning to think of that warm weather. Got you a little sleepy or something. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the NIV, and it'll be on screen for you. It says this. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you have received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then bound to be false, found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still slave in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But, but, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father until after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. But some may, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Man have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born... The likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. So I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will become true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us from the gospel of Paul here. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we need your word. We need your truth. As Paul says here, this is what we take our stand upon. This is our rock. Your words, Lord, when we build upon them are like a man building a house on a rock. No matter what storms come our way, we stand secure. And we give you glory for that, Lord, this morning. We thank you for your word. And we invite you, come and speak to our hearts. Whatever's going on in our hearts, Holy Spirit, come and minister to us. Draw us back again to the imperishable word of God. Over and over again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'll start by asking a seemingly unrelated question, but how many of you guys have house project lists of things around the house you're trying to get done? All right, of those who raise their hand, how many of you guys have like a never-ending list? Anyone? I feel like my list of things around the house that I need to fix or whatever, I just, I never am able to get around all of it. I never feel like I'm on top of it, right? Confession's good for the soul, so it's, it's good for you who raised your hands this morning. Anybody who owns a home, though, they know that owning a house, that's a lot of upkeep, right? It's a lot of maintenance that you have to put into your house, your yard, whatever. Something happened. I was driving uh, about two weeks ago to take Ethan to school. I was driving in, in the Cuyahoga Valley, and it was just a beautiful little village in the Cuyahoga Valley. And then I, I kind of turned a corner, and I saw, like, house after house that was just in disrepair, <laughs> and I had just happened to be thinking about my long list of things that I need to get done. And I drove down this street and saw these houses that were dilapidated. And you know what happens to us when that kind of thing happens, right? That's going to be me. If I don't change the furnace filter, my house is going to look like that in 45 days or something like that. Because we're irrational beings, right? At least, okay, confession's good for the soul. Maybe this is my time to confess. This is how I think sometimes. So I'm, I'm driving down this road. I'm seeing these houses, and of course, what happens? When I get home, I start making a new list of things to do. I start going and changing light bulbs and stuff like that. I'm like, no, not on my watch, right? Because we've got to be good stewards. That's what we preach. That's how we think, though. 
If we don't do the little things, all of a sudden it's going to sneak up on us or something like that. You know, we inherently know something about the way things work on this earth, that things don't last forever. Things decay, things that we're responsible for. We have to take care of them. And if we're honest with ourselves as human beings, we know that that's how things work in this world. We encounter decay. We encounter death. And, you know, in many areas of our lives, we encounter these things and we hate it. It just, we, we wish that things would just last forever, right? You buy something new and shiny and you wish it would never fall apart someday. We hate it. We want to overcome this idea, but it's a reality that we can't avoid about our world, right? Things fall apart. Things need maintenance. Maybe you've heard it said before, but the saying goes like this, death is the great equalizer. We can't escape it. We all know it's there. We all face it. We all deal with it. And inside of every human being is this desire to escape or transcend death, even just transcend the fact that things don't last forever in our world. Why is that? The Bible tells us that's because we were made for eternity. We were made for eternity. From the beginning, you and I were created for unending life with God. That's what the Bible tells us and teaches us. Ecclesiastes says it like this. God has put eternity in the hearts of every human being. We all long for it. We know we were made for it. So when we encounter death and decay and houses falling apart, we're like, this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. There's something in our chest that's beating for more. Death and decay, they entered into the picture after us. They were not around when God was creating us. So when we encounter them, it stirs within us a desire for something more, something greater. Whether you trust in Jesus or not, and you're here today or watching online, every one of us shares this human impulse, this desire to get beyond death. I mean, you think about it with me. How many stories that we see in books or on movies or TV shows, how many of our stories that we tell are focused on escaping death? Mastering death, becoming immortal. Pretty much any sci-fi saga, right? Any fantasy novel you're going to read, there's going to be someone who's trying to conquer death. Who's going to live forever. Because that's the human story. That's the story that's actually deep in all of our hearts. From sci-fi to Shakespeare, you're going to find that story in human beings. From ancient myth to modern marvel, they're there. We've been warring against death and decay. The great equalizers for millennia as human beings. In Corinth, Paul encountered something. He encountered a way of thinking about death and decay that is, honestly, it's not so different than the way people are talking about these things in our day. We call it the mature intellectual approach, right? Well, death is a reality. We cannot change it. The mature thing is to simply accept our fate and party hard right now while we can, right? That's what he says. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. The idea of resurrection in Corinth was something that was unthinkable. It was nonsensical in their culture of advanced intellect in the ancient world. And that vibes a lot with our world, right? The idea of resurrection is still unthinkable to our modern intellectualized world. Corinth, you know, had sort of taken its cues from down the road in Athens, where Paul stopped before arriving at the church in Corinth from the big guns of philosophers on the Mars Hill. And we know that Paul preached there first, and they laughed at him 
when? When he preached the resurrection. They laughed at him. Acts 17.32 says this in the NL2. When they heard him speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt and others said, okay, you can tell us some more about this. A few were curious, but many laughed at him because the idea of overcoming death was for myths, not for reality. That's not so different from our day. That's not so different from our day. Many dismiss the idea of resurrection as childish today as well in our modern culture. Because, you might hear it said like this often, well, I'm not cynical, I'm just a realist. Come on, you know you've encountered those kind of people before. I'm not cynical, I'm just a realist. You're off with the fairies with your idea of life after death. That's all for the birds. In our world, we live with the same kind of cold, disenchanted denial of the supernatural. Denial of anything that goes beyond what we can feel and touch and taste. And Paul wants us to see that this cold rationalism is not the same thing as maturity. As much as it parades itself around like, well, this is the mature thing to do, it's not maturity, and belief in the resurrection is not a childish thing at all. In verses 12 through 19, he talks to them about, you know, if, if you don't believe in the resurrection, well, then what does that mean? Well, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then Jesus can't have been raised either, And if he's not alive, then our faith is useless. Our witnesses are liars. Our sin is still in control of us. Anybody who died is lost forever. In short, we should be pitied above anyone. Above everything else, we should be pitied if we believe Jesus came and died, but was not raised by God to new life that he promised. That's what Paul says. Because he wants it to be clear to them. The resurrection is central to the gospel. It's not a feature of the gospel story like, oh, and he lived on. No, it is the cornerstone of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot deny the resurrection and hold on to the Jesus who covered your sins. It doesn't work like that. The resurrection, the gospel is the full gospel and it's an all or nothing gospel. And if it's nothing, Paul says, then we're supposed to be pitied above everyone else. We who suffer and die for this gospel. In verses 1 through 11, Paul began by telling them the history of how we came to believe this. And he said this, he said, look, this isn't something I made up, okay? There are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. There's 500 of them over here, there's 12 of them here. Jesus appeared to these people. Most of these people, you can go knock on their door and ask them about it. I didn't make this up. This is the same story all the believers hold to with everything they've got, are willing to die for. And in fact, I'm the least of the people who preach this gospel. That's what Paul said. I'm the least. So, verse 15, he says, if if we're denying the resurrection, that the dead cannot be raised, that that's the end of the story and that's all there is, that's calling all of those witnesses to be liars as well. And more than this, N.T. Wright says... If they deny the resurrection, they're declaring that no great event has yet happened through which the world has been changed. They're reducing Christianity to a form of spirituality, a new religion to take its place alongside others in the marketplace of ancient pluralism. And this danger is just as present today as it was in the first century. Think about it. You know, Jesus is just a great teacher. I like the teachings of Jesus. I'm going to sprinkle them in. Not to get too uh, into modern events, but, you know, look at some of the things Kyrie Irving's been putting out lately. All religions. I've embraced this from that one, that kind of thing. 
There's a term for that. We call it syncretism, blending of beliefs. And you can blend Jesus with a whole lot of things. People have done it. But Paul's saying, no, this is an all or nothing gospel. And how many times when it comes to the point of the resurrection do people go, oh, maybe. I'm going to believe this too. I'm just going to stack the deck in my favor. One of them will work out for me. N.T. Wright says this, this danger of reducing Christianity to just another spiritual form of teaching like our diets nowadays, this danger is as present today as it was in the first century. Jesus is not just a great teacher or just the one who wiped the slate clean for us. He is alive, he is the Lord of all, and he is reigning right now. Paul says this, if you say there's no resurrection, none of it matters, but, but, Verse 20, Christ has indeed risen. He is alive, and that changes everything. The NLT says it like this. This is the fact he's alive. This is the fact. I like that. Because that fact is what we build our lives on. That fact is a guarantee for us. Because he is alive, we will live with him, as promised. He's the first fruit. He's the forerunner of the life that we are guaranteed forever. And that kingdom he talked about everywhere he went throughout the Gospels, it's here and it's coming in full. Maybe you've heard of it said like this. This is the already not yet kingdom of God. Jesus is alive. He is reigning. He is alive forevermore. One day that kingdom is going to come in power and clarity and force. Already not yet kingdom initiated at the resurrection to arrive in full when Jesus returns in glory. So this is Paul's gospel. Jesus is alive. Jesus is king. Jesus is reigning. He will keep on reigning until every enemy is silenced forever and we are forever with him. When Paul writes about the reign of Christ, it holds so much promise for us. Because he is alive, all of the promises are promises we can claim. In verses 25 and 26, he quotes two psalms when talking about the reigning Messiah. These two psalms, Psalm 110 and Psalm 8, were huge for the early church. And they painted a picture of the supremacy and the continual reign of the Messiah. But the, the order in which Paul quotes them is kind of significant. Because Psalm 110, which he quotes first, is all about the Messiah and God putting everything under the Messiah's feet. Then Psalm 8 is actually about God's intention for us as human beings, as God created us. And Tom Wright sums up the significance here. He says this, this role of being under God but over the world is not just the task of the Messiah, It is what God had in mind from the very beginning when he created human beings in his own image. This is how Paul ties the whole passage tightly together. The achievement of the Messiah and his present reign in which he is bringing the world back to order is the fulfillment of what God intended human beings to do on earth. What is he saying? Jesus has overcome. Jesus is victorious. And that's our victory too. His victory is our victory too. He came to set us free and to restore us 
to the original design and purpose that God had in mind in the first place. All the things that sin has put wrong in us, all the crazy stuff that we have messed up the world with as human beings, Jesus has overcome. And he is victorious today, and that's our victory too. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the story. This is the theme of the word, that we are made in the image of God. Maybe you've heard this before, to be made in the image of God. What does that mean, that, that, that idea of being made in his image? It means that God made human beings uniquely to exercise his authority on earth as royal priests. You might have heard that phrase as well, royal priests. Jesus is the first fruit, says Paul. And when his kingdom fully arrives, we will reign with him. We will reign with him. The book of Revelation is loaded with language about the saints, those who believe, those who were true, reigning with Christ. As Dallas Willard says, this life, all that we encompass in this life is merely training for reigning. We tend to imagine mansions and rewards and things like that when we think about heaven, but come on, in in comparison to reigning with Christ, are you kidding me? Right? It's kind of funny, it's fresh in my mind. We were uh, down south in Hilton Head, and um, we went to like a, on the island, there's like a petting zoo, and they have horses, and my son is sitting there, and we took him into the shop because you could actually get like a pony ride. I'm like, oh, it's going to be great memory, great memory. He's four years old, it's going to be a great memory. And you know what happened? We walked into that store, and he, they had all these little toys, like toy farm animals. And you know what? He got so fixated on this pig. It's a pig! With like udders and everything. It was kind of disgusting looking pig, to be honest. And he wanted it so bad. So we said, look, you can have the pony ride. Or you can have the pig. Guess which one he chose, right? <laughs> Just coming back to mind right now. I feel like that's how God is with all of us. He's like, you could have the real deal. Reigning with him. And yet, anytime you talk about heaven, you're like, gold, we want the gold. What is wrong with you? You want the pig? Sorry, it's just fresh in my mind. Still a little bit upset with it. I think he called it mommy sow sow. There's clearly a sow. <laughs> Honest. It's our victory, too. It's our victory, too. God has so much more in store for us than we could ever imagine. And the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what we build this whole thing on. So, Paul says, we're going to need a body that doesn't decay. Right? How many of you guys are like, hallelujah, thank you for that, I'll take that right now. We're going to need a body that isn't subject to death. And there's a need for us to be clear about what Paul says in this passage. Says Tom Wright. The, the resurrection isn't about some generic floating afterlife thing that's all spiritual as an ethereal ideal. It means, no mistake, we will be given new bodies. Like, there's a bodily resurrection. Not a disembodied experience in the heavenly realms. It's a physical reality. That's what Paul says. Now, how God is going to do this, that part he says is still a mystery. Do you know there are things in the word that are still a mystery? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he's revealed to us belong to us and our children forever. There are things that only God knows. Can we be okay with that? I know we have Google. I know we have every answer at our fingertips, believe them or not. 
But there are things that only God will know. How he's going to bring this about, we get to watch and see and enjoy and cheer on and thank him for. But this is a mystery. However, he has revealed something. And Paul says this is what we can count on. Verse 51 and 53 tell us we will all be changed. We will all be changed. What was once perishable, subject to decay, will become imperishable. What was once mortal will become immortal. You can build your house on that. So death, the great equalizer and terrorizer of the human race, where's your sting? Where is your sting? What can people do to us? What can death do to us? Death is swallowed up forever in the victory of our God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen from someone today? It is the ultimate restoration of how God intends things to be for you and I. And it's the bedrock upon which all of our hopes are built now and forever. Because today we're going to look out and we're going to see an imperfect world. Struggling with death and decay. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ means perfection is on the way. Perfection is coming, guaranteed. Amen? I like what D.L. Moody said. He said this, Someday you're going to hear that Dwight L. Moody is dead. Don't believe it. For in that moment, I will be more alive than ever. Verse 57 Paul wraps up and he says, thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our victory as well. For everyone who names the name of Jesus, this is our victory as well. This is the gospel of Paul. This is the good news, the full news of Jesus the King who is reigning right now. So let me ask us today, what is our gospel What's the focal point of our gospel? For Paul, it's pretty clear. It's the resurrected Jesus. Full stop. The resurrected Jesus is the focus of the gospel. What's the focus of our gospel? We can ask ourselves today, what's the gospel of word of grace? And if we're honest about church life in general and modern day America, there are a lot of gospels out there. There are a lot of things that are preached. Few of them have the same razor-sharp focus on the resurrection of Christ Jesus as what we see from Paul here. But it's so important that we make that the heartbeat of our gospel again. It may sound simple, but I want to say to us today, we need to embrace the full gospel with all our hearts and all of our lives and all of our actions and all of our will. We need to go back to the full gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to put up an image on screen if we can put it up, Jason. I took a snapshot of this from a book, and hopefully you can see it. Um, Just concentrate where it says full story and half story. Full story, the full gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the full story. If the gospel is represented in those four parts, modern church tends to emphasize the middle two, fall and redemption, fall and redemption. You know, you screwed up. You need Jesus. He can wipe your slate clean. 
We don't get into the resurrection and what it means for us, what the future holds, and we don't go back sometimes to what God had intended from the beginning. The full gospel tells a much more well-rounded story, and it leads to life change. Because half the gospel is really just folks about me. Yeah, I know I'm screwed up. I need to get this weight off my shoulders, so Jesus, can you take that? Thanks for taking my sin. I'll go back to doing whatever I want now. Right? We see this gospel in a million forms regurgitated in the modern day church, but we need to go back to the full story. The symbol of our faith is the cross, but the cross was not the end of the story. Amen? Amen. We don't just preach a gospel of sin management, but of total freedom that is bigger than just me and my struggles. Scott McKnight says this, no matter how central the cross is to the story and to the plan of salvation, we need to keep in mind that the story is more than the story of the cross. Jesus didn't just die. It is common today to emphasize the death of Jesus as reconciling, forgiving, atoning, propitiating, redeeming, ransoming, and justifying, but not much gospel narrative deals with the burial, the resurrection, the appearances, or the final consummation of what is to come. The gospel story doesn't just stop at, I'm screwed up and Jesus paid the price. That's, that's nice, that's good, that's important. But it holds far more promise than just our release from the enemy's grasp here and now. Although, I'll be honest, we should stop there and praise him all day, every day for that. And often we don't. But there's more. There's more than that. You see, the resurrection is the turning point of all of history The beginning of a whole new order of things in Christ. The resurrection is the restoration of the world to as God intends it to be. And it's going to go on being restored forever. N.T. Wright wraps it up like this. He says, it is only the resurrection that makes the crucifixion appear anything more than a horrible end for another failed Messiah. He didn't stay in the grave. He's alive today. He's alive forevermore. And the full gospel is a counter-narrative that changed the world and continues to change the world. Jesus came to do far more than just live out a perfect life and lay it down. He took that life back up again. And so will we as we step into the future with him. Favorite saying of Paul, as he says to the Romans in chapter 6 or Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he says it like this, if we died with him, then we will also be raised with him. The true gospel means life everlasting, and that begins today. That begins right now with new life that Jesus promised for us. The resurrection is the exclamation point, the seal and the promise of our future glory with him, the lens through which we see our present reality. Russell Spittler says this, the resurrection, it's no mere theological dogma laid to rest in some dusty volume, It is the keystone of the living Christian faith, the source of all Christian life. Because of the resurrection, we know the Lord lives. Because he lives, we live. Because we live in the sunlight of resurrection power, our work is sure and our future secure. Yeah, that's a good time to say amen. We have this great hope as the anchor of our souls when we have this hope in the resurrection, hope for eternity, that transforms our today as well, amen? Because what can anyone do to me that cannot 
be washed away in the future that Jesus has for me. Amen? So, it's not the mature despair that we see around us in our society. Just, well, death is inevitable. Let's just wait until we return to matter. Death may be an inescapable reality, but we're promised something that goes deeper than death. We're, something, we're promised something more. Life more abundantly, Jesus called it. That's our inheritance in Jesus. Amen? And it is available to you and to me right now by the power of his spirit in us. Spirit of God, Paul tells us, is the down payment of the life of eternity that is ours forevermore. And he enables us to engage even our frustrated, weary, despairing neighbors that are, this is all there is and death is just waiting. He enables us to step into the world we see with the light of his love and victory every day. The gospel, this gospel, the full gospel, transforms our lives, and it transforms how we live our lives today. If we believe it, we live out this gospel. One more time, Tom Wright. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian counterculture, and it is a counterculture to live with the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the primary reality of your life. It is the impetus for living differently in the world around us because he lives, because he's alive, because it's not just in some dusty volume. We live differently because we have a different hope and a different identity. We are citizens of heaven and we're training for reigning. Amen? Amen. Throughout this letter, we've seen Paul call them to be different from their culture in so many ways, right? We've seen him call them out in their eating and drinking, in their sexual fidelity, in the way they gather together, in their care and support for one another and those in need, in unifying around Christ instead of dividing into factions around their agendas. Hello. In the way they see their economic differences, their ethnic differences, and so many more things. He calls them to be different, to stick out like a sore thumb in ancient Corinth and just like that. We need to be different today. How many of you guys know we need to see believers willing to stand up to represent the kingdom more and more, amen? In our world, as things get darker, the light needs to be shining brighter and brighter, and it shines through us and the way we are with one another. But at the heart of it all, as Paul challenges them to be different, what does he do? Every single time, he brings it back to the gospel, the resurrected Jesus Christ. At the heart of it all is this gospel, He says, we live differently because we're redeemed and because we have new life in us and because we have a future and a hope that cannot be cut off. And because of that, we can live so differently than our world. Whenever Paul calls them to be different, he calls them back to the good news of Jesus. He says this, be united. Don't be divided amongst other. Be united because the body of Christ is one. It's not divided. Be sexually pure because you were bought with a price and redeemed. Keep the communion meal holy because it tells the story of Christ's death and points ahead to him returning and us sharing this meal with him forever. Love each other this way because this is the kind of love God showed us in his son, the kind of love that lasts into eternity. At every turn in the book of Corinthians here, 1 Corinthians, we are called to be different Because we have believed this eternity-shaped gospel. And we belong to the king 
who died and is alive and reigns forevermore. So, let's heed the call of this letter together. Let's let it speak to us. Maybe you need to go back and listen again to some messages. Maybe you need to go back to your notes, whatever. Let's heed the call of this powerful letter. Let's not shrink back in the same temptations, what Paul calls in Romans the patterns of our world, right? Let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the Spirit of God working and and being given permission to change us. You know, we face all the same temptations they face then now. And maybe some more. Those things are just as present today as they were then. So let's not let any other path take us astray from what God has called us to together as his people. Amen? Instead, let's press in. Let's press on together to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. I want to read to you verse 57 and 58. The last thoughts from Paul here are beautiful. He says this. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. Think about that. He gives us this victory. It's his victory, but he's sharing it with me. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, whenever there's a therefore, think what is therefore. Because we have victory in Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm today. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus has overcome sin and death and we get to live in his victory, says Paul. So we commit ourselves once more to walking as he walked, to standing firm in the authority he's given us, to growing in grace by the power of his spirit, changing me every day, because Lord knows I need it every day. That does not mean it will be easy. You know, it's always the harder choice to make. Man, the world will cheer you on if you depart from this. Trust me. But you want to be different. You want to stand out. Live your life for him. Paul says it's not in vain. It's not going to be easy, but it's not in vain. It's not in vain. It will be worth it every single time. Our labor for him is not wasted ever. I love how Paul ends this passage. You know, he's been talking to them about the resurrection of Jesus, about heavenly bodies and things that we can't understand, these grand mysteries beyond the veil of death, but he doesn't end with his thoughts beyond the veil of death. No, he ends with his mind into how do we live right now? How are we living this out today? His eyes are on the present moment, the task that Jesus gave to all of us. And he says this, give yourselves fully to it. Stick to it. Let nothing knock you off your game. In Christ, you know, there's no difference between the way that we act out our lives right now and what we say we believe about the future. They're one and the same. If we say we believe and we hold to this full gospel, it will come out in how we live our lives today. They're one and the same. The victory of Jesus, the resurrected, the ascended king, means that our past, our present, and our future belong to him. All of it. We're called together by God as one body. Not just for someday, somewhere, but to the here and now. To bear witness to Jesus the king in the way that we love one another, in the way that we make disciples, in the way that we trust him. So, once again, as we end this 
Study in the book of Corinthians. Keep going. Keep pressing in. Maybe God's laid something on your heart and you haven't been pursuing it with all of your heart. Press in again. Trust him again. Maybe you're holding on to a promise and you're just waiting for when it's going to come about. Press in again. Trust him again. He's alive forevermore. He's not making you any promises in vain. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.